And uh, the rest of us, can you turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 5? Nehemiah chapter 5. What happened to chapter 4? Um, Pastor Doug will come to that, uh, Lord willing, next week. Um, he is uh, um, working on a retreat right now, so if you can pray for him as he is um, doing that and serving in that way. He'll be dealing with um, chapters 4 and 6 next week, so if you want to read ahead, um, that will be talking about conflicts outside the church and uh, struggles that happen with outside the church. Today, I get the opportunity to talk to you from uh, Nehemiah chapter 5 about conflicts that happen within the body of believers on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I was watching this um, program this week, and uh, it was a program on this guy who had built millions, billions of dollars from people. And um, as I was watching the show, I had heard about this guy in the news. He's been in prison now for several years, and I guess he'll be in prison for the rest of his life for the amount of money and how he defrauded so many people. Uh, charities, churches, just people all around. And, um, you know, I didn't know much about the story, but as I listened to the story bef um, in, the, in this movie, I found that he was, he was defrauding people that were friends and family. See, in my mind, I think it would be easier, sad to say, to defraud somebody who's faceless, right? Nameless. You're just a number on an account, and I could defraud you. But to actually look at you eyeball to eyeball and to sit down with you Sunday after Sunday or week after week, you, you call me a friend, you call me a family member, and I take advantage of you. I'm not sure how you could do that. But we do that all the time, don't we? Because as I was watching this man and watching how much money he was able to grab and then the destruction of his life, and the destruction of his life impacted not only the people that were around him, but it impacted his very family. His son died a horrific death. Another son committed suicide. His wife doesn't even want to speak to him. His daughter-in-law hates him. And it's... It's the reality that sin divides, and sin destroys, and sin defeats. And as Pastor Doug is going to get an opportunity to talk about the oppression that happens around the church, one of the things that tend to happen with oppression that happens around our church, that comes at our church, is the fact that oftentimes that actually grows us closer to one another. We unify, and we say that we're going to march out in one voice. But when there is destruction that happens within the body, it causes division. And I saw his family just breaking apart, just piece by piece. And I saw that happening. I see that happening week after week as I counsel people. I see the destruction that happens from within families, destruction that happens within marriages, the destruction that can happen within a body of believers. We're building a beautiful building just down the road looking forward to that building. But that building will mean nothing if there's divisions within the body. That building will mean nothing if there is disharmony and disunity and, and a lack of gospel-centeredness in our lives. You can build a beautiful building, but if you're not preaching the gospel, and if you're not living the gospel, nobody's going to be transformed. Nobody's going to be changed. 
weeks ago, I talked to you about um, conflict. We're going to look at conflict from a different route this morning. And if you remember when I talked to you about conflict that time, I talked about three basic principles. The first principle was this, that we tend to promote ourselves. Second, we tend to try to protect ourselves. And then the third element is that we will tend to punish other people. That in our anger, we have a tendency to promote ourselves, protect ourselves, and then punish other people. I think you're going to see that element happening right here in Nehemiah chapter 5. People were trying to promote themselves, they were trying to protect their well-being, and they were punishing other people. And Nehemiah said, we've had enough. Read with me in Nehemiah chapter 5. It says this. Now those, there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So Nehemiah is getting an outcry. Nehemiah is hearing that there is something radically wrong here. You know what I appreciate about a Nehemiah? I believe a godly leader is not just somebody who can get up and teach or preach. I think a godly leader is a shepherd. I think a godly leader is somebody that cares for the flock. I believe a godly leader is somebody that is a carer, a nurturer, somebody that is going to look to protect the flock. But I also think a godly leader is what Nehemiah showed. He first had a compassion for those that were hurting. And we see that here. Now, Nehemiah is building, his con- his building this wall over here. All of the business of building that wall over there, Nehemiah is they can- taking time to hear from people like you about the struggles that are happening in their lives. And the struggles, they're bringing their outcry, and they're bringing their struggles. They said in verse 2, for there were those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many. So let us get a grain that we may eat and keep alive. And there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain, but because of the famine. And verse 4, and then there were those who said, we are borrowing money for the king's taxes on the fields, our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our, some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and vineyards. All right, so what is happening is here. You ever think about this? Let's say that um, the eldership asked every single one of you to leave your job for the next number of months and start working on the building, okay? So every day, you're not going to go to work. You are going to go and work on the building so that we can have our new building. Well, I know that some people live here paycheck to paycheck, right? Can you imagine the sacrifice that it must have taken for people to give up their livelihood to work on this wall? The sacrifice that they were taking, they were struggling right now financially. On top of it, not only were they struggling financially, second, there was a famine that was happening in the land. This is an agrarian culture. They get most of their profits from the land. And if there's a famine in the land, they're not getting any profits. So they have money problems. They're not taking in enough income. Then king's taxes. Doesn't that sound familiar? The taxes. Can you imagine the taxes at the time were supposedly 40 to 50% of your income? We think we have it bad today. 
40 to 50% of the income were going to the king's taxes. And what were they doing? They were mortgaging their families. They were mortgaging their homes. They even were, at this time, having to sell their children to play collateral for their debt. That's the struggle that they were going through. I've given up my work on a daily basis to work on this wall. I can't take an income. I don't have enough. There's a famine in the land. I'm mortgaging myself out, and now I've still got to pay the king's taxes. But what was happening was this. Some greedy people, kind of like the guy I was telling you about earlier, saw a way in. He saw a way that he could manipulate the situation, and some of these rich people were taking advantage of fellow believers. Once again, they weren't taking advantage of people outside. They were taking advantage of people within this body. And Nehemiah heard it. The thing I hear about Nehemiah's compassion is this. He had a compassion for the hurting. He, he was empathetic. He listened. He was kind. He was considerate. He took time out of his busy schedule just to listen to the struggles that were here. You know, listening is a skill, but you can learn it. Some of you are pretty bad listeners, right? But you can learn how to be skillful at listening and learning. You can just not hear, but you can be active. You know what happens when you listen to people and their pain? It enhances the relationship. When you listen, what it does, it inspires responses from other people. When you listen, what it does is it gives you insight into the needs of others. When you listen, what it does is it may actually reduce friction. It may actually reduce the struggles that are happening. When you listen, it helps you to serve other people better. When you listen, it builds a climate of trust. Part of the reason why we have conflicts in this world is because we lack compassion for one another because we stop listening to one another. Nehemiah took time away from his busy schedule just to listen to people that were in need. It's the first thing I find out about Nehemiah, compassion for the hurting. The second thing I find starts in verse 6, conviction for holiness, conviction for holiness. Now, after Nehemiah has heard the cries of the people and how they're being taken advantage of, what he says is this, I was very angry when I heard the outcry in their words. It's interesting, as I read the commentators this week, the commentators were kind of divided. Actually, most of them thought that Nehemiah was wrong in his anger. And it's just, I couldn't get it. Nehemiah had heard that these people who were giving it sacrificially to helping with the wall were being taken advantage of by fellow church members. Nehemiah had a right to be angry in my mind. There's this guy, he wrote this book, Uprooting Anger. You know, if you ever want to, uh, if you have an anger problem, it's a great book. He's Robert Jones. And in this book, he had given three basic principles to try to identify whether you have an anger problem or not, whether it's righteous or not. The first principle is this. Is there a biblical standard? Is there an objective standard that has been broken here? Yes, very clearly. If you read the Old Testament law, lending to fellow believers at a usury interest was wrong. To force them to be enslaved was wrong. In fact, what God says, and taking their property from them and keeping them in bondage was wrong. You don't do that to a fellow believer. That was in the law. So Robert Jones would say that the first element is to find out if there's a biblical standard for my anger. Well, there was. The second element that Robert Jones would say uh, to determine whether your anger is right or not is 
Are you doing it for the glory of God and the good of others? What's your motive? See, there are a bunch of times I can think of that I get angry over some standard that I believe is broken. They're not showing me respect. You're not showing me love. You're not treating me the right way. I could find a biblical standard, but now the next element is this. Am I doing it for the motive of the glory of God and the good of others? I think he passed that test as well. And then Jones would give you the third criteria. The first one is the standard. The second one is the motive. The third principle is this. Do I display Christ-like characteristics in my anger? See, it's one thing to be angry over something. It's one, another thing to say that I'm doing it for God's glory and others' good. But now if I attack you and I become sinful in the way I'm acting, my righteous anger has now become sinful anger. But if I use those three criteria and look at Nehemiah, he was angry over what? A broken law. What was he concerned about? The glory of God and the good of others. And how did he display his characteristics? We're going to see that he displayed characteristics in God-honoring ways. We need to learn from how Nehemiah handled this. It says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard the outcry of these words. And then what did he do? One of the first steps in making sure that you handle your anger in a God-honoring way, he took counsel with himself. See, most of us react, right? We get angry, we react. Some of us overreact, right? We get defensive, overly emotional. We let our emotions drive us. We lose control, we get impulsive, and we say that, okay, you know what? Even though I acted in this way, it was because you did this to me. We blame somebody else, right? We react. What God requires of us is to respond in God-honoring ways, to, to be thoughtful, to be reasonable, to be responsible, not to lose control, but to gain control. And when you do that, you're going to listen, you're going to learn, and what God's going to do through you is this. He is going to help you to confront people in God-honoring ways. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but when you act in God-dishonoring ways in your anger, you may get somebody to do something immediately because they want you to shut up, right? But it doesn't become lasting change. Lasting change comes not from pressure, but from persuasion. That I'm going to persuade you that what you're doing is wrong. You're not glorifying God. You're not helping other people. You're impacting the body of believers. And you think it's going to bring your peace. It won't. And so Nehemiah took time to counsel himself before he opened his mouth. I think we need to learn from that counsel. Well, Nehemiah first had a compassion for those who were hurting. Second, he had a conviction for holiness. Third, he, had, he confronted to bring healing. He confronted to bring healing. We see this at the end of verse 7. It says, after I took counsel with myself, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. You know, one of the first steps in God-honoring confrontation, and we'll talk about some principles at the end, um, one of the steps in God-honoring confrontation is that I need to go to you one-on-one. -on -one. As I was reading through some of the commentaries and listening to sermons this week, one of uh, one sermon, I think it was Stephen Cole, mentioned a point that was very interesting. Elders and leaders can't know that there's a problem unless you come to us. What people tend to do in bodies, 
families or bodies of believers that we talk, we gossip, we slander. We don't deal with a person directly. We deal about the person. We talk about the person. We don't talk to the person. Nehemiah had none of that. Nehemiah says, I got a problem with you. I'm making an appointment with you. I'm coming and talking to you. He confronted them. Now, did he yell and scream at them? No. He was just very pointed. He said, I said to them, you are exacting interest from your brothers. Nehemiah didn't know Matthew 18. He didn't know the name of Jesus. But if you get an opportunity this week to read Matthew 18, verses 15 and following, it gives you the principles of how you resolve conflict. First, you start one-on-one. And then when that doesn't work, what you do is bring one or two others in. And if that doesn't work, then you bring it to the eldership and the leadership of this church. And all of that are the steps to try to help that you can produce healing in these relationships. That's our desire. We want God's glory and your good. And so that's what's happening. So Nehemiah went to these elders and he said, what you're doing is not, he went to these leaders and said, what you're doing is not right. Now it doesn't say it in this passage, but I'm going to have to assume they didn't listen. Kind of like me. I'm kind of hard at it at times. When you come to me, I mean, I'm a little hard at it. I may not hear it. And Nehemiah then said this, he went from a private confrontation now to a public one. What you're doing, you're exacting interest from your brothers, and I held then a great assembly against them. See, it's a one-on-one problem right now, but it's not working. You're not hearing me. So now I'm going to bring the body of believers together to say, we need to talk about this. What amazes me is this. This wall project is, is the primary reason why Nehemiah is there. And Nehemiah said, and people are taking time off of work to work on this project. We got to get this project done quickly. People are enslaved and money and all this. But what Nehemiah says, we're going to stop building the building. We're going to stop building the wall because we got to get this right. And he stopped the project on the building to bring us together to talk. He went from a personal confrontation to a public one. And he said to them, verse 8, we as far as we are able have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold. What had happened was this, if you remember Old Testament times, Jewish people were in bondage and slavery. They were in bondage and slavery to foreign nations. Some Jewish brothers had taken out their own money to bring back some of their Jewish brothers and sisters from bondage from secular nations, non-Christian, non-godly nations. So we brought you back so that we redeemed you. And he's saying, how hypocritical is it that we redeemed them from a foreign nation to make them enslaved to us? It makes no sense. What you're doing is not right. You know what's funny here at the end of verse 8? They were silent. They couldn't say a word. You ever get nailed by somebody? Kind of like Nathan sticking his bony finger in David's face and saying, you're the man? You ever sit? You know, I mean, I could sit under somebody's preaching and I could hear it. You know, it's like, oh my goodness. It's like he's reading my mail. I mean, it's like, he, he, what, what was he in my car coming here to church? I mean, he, he knows what's going on. It's like he's always, that's exactly what's happening. They were silent. They couldn't say a word. 
His confrontation was trying to bring healing and restoration. Verse 9. So I said the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not walk in the fear of God? That idea of fear in God is, uh, comes from the wisdom literature. It means to live in the awe of God, devotion to him, and kindness to him, and integrity towards others, and a witness to the unbelieving world. See, what Nehemiah is saying is this, that the gospel of God's amazing grace should so fill our hearts and our lives that it, it flows through us, that we stand under this water, waterfall of his grace, and it just pours over us, and then it should pour out of us. And the non-believing world, it should impact our marriages, it should impact our families, it should impact this church. They will know we are Christians by our love. It should transform us. And the unbelieving world should look at this body of believers and say, yeah, they're building a nice building down the road, but you know what? There's something about those people. They're radically different. And Nehemiah's confrontation was looking to bring healing and restoration. You know, we see confrontation throughout the Bible. God confronted Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam, where are you? God confronted Cain before he killed his brother. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must master us. God confronted um, Jacob when he wrestled with him. God confronted Nathan to confront David. He used Nathan to confront David. Jesus often confronted his apostles. You remember the night that he was betrayed, he confronted Peter and said, Peter, be careful of where you're going. He uses confrontation in scripture. As one author put it, um, he said, caring confrontation out of concern. I care about you. I'm concerned for where you're going. And I'm going to confront you, not because I'm better than you, but because I love you and I'm compassionate for you and I care for you. That's what Nehemiah said to his people. Nehemiah was concerned that these people would be uh, acting in God dishonoring ways and that the nations would be seeing this. Verse 10, moreover, I and my brothers and servants are lending them money and grain. And then he gets very specific. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Once again, some of the commentaries thought that Nehemiah was actually defrauding people as well. That's why he said, let us abandon this. I don't think that at all. I think Nehemiah was what leaders are called to be, a person of the people. And that if you remember Isaiah, he says that I am a man of unclean lips. I'm of a people of unclean lips. He is aligning himself with the unbelieving. He's aligning himself with the body. That's what a shepherd does. A shepherd gets up in front of his body and he says that I'm leading you and I'm responsible for you. That's what Nehemiah is saying. I'm joining with you in this sin. Let's confess it. In verse 11, he says, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, their percentages of money, their grain, their wine, their oil, all that you've been exacting from them. And what's amazing is verse 12. I would love this. Then they said, we will do it. We will restore the things and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Can you imagine, Tim, you know, we get up and preach and then all of a sudden tons of people just get saved or people just get, uh, you know, 
um, reform their lives and they say, yes, I'm going to do it. And marriages are instantaneously changed. Can you imagine that? That would be pretty incredible. It doesn't often happen where you get an opportunity to preach or teach and automatically they respond immediately, but they did. I think they did because Nehemiah followed biblical principles of how to handle conflict and they heard him. They weren't pressured into changing. They were persuaded that what they were doing was wrong, not glorifying God and not honoring others. And they responded. They repented. And they restored restitution. How many of you have ever struggled with making a commitment to something and then not following through on it? Don't have to raise your hand. I'll raise both of mine for you. Well, Nehemiah didn't take them at their word alone. I think it was Ronald Reagan who said, trust but verify. So what did he do? He then called the priest in. He says, okay, you made a promise. Let me call the priest in. You confirm it before the priest. He said this, I called the priest and I made them swear to do as they promised. I also did something symbolically. I shook out the folds of my garment. It's a way to say this. So may God shake out every person of the house and from his labor, who does not keep this promise, so may they be shaken or emptied. He lays a level of judgment upon them. He says this, you've, been, you've heard what you've done was wrong. By God's grace, that law has been provided to you. Now you've been given the grace of forgiveness. Now what you need to do is to continue in that path. And the assembly said, amen. Praise the Lord. Can you imagine that at the end of a, a confrontation that when you've been confronted by somebody that you could go, amen, praise the Lord? You could see that there must be some radical heart change. This is not just external. This is something that's happened deep within. And the people did as they promised. So what do we have? We have a compassion for the hurting. We have a conviction for holiness. We have confronting to bring healing. And then I have a commitment to help a commitment to help. Isaiah, this is kind of like, this next section is kind of like his personal journal. I don't know how many of you keep a journal. I keep a journal. And in the journal, I'll put the things that uh, God has been teaching me. I call it a spiritual journal, a prayer request for you, um, things that I'll, uh, sermons that I've heard, and I write those things down, um, things that I know I need to work on. Um, well, Nehemiah kind of kept a journal as well. Now, he, he gives this journal about his own life, his commitment to helping other people. And he says this in verse 14, Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, I'll stop there for a second. I don't know when he became governor. Because you remember when he left Artaxerxes, um, when he left the king, he was not a governor at the time, and he was only going to build this wall. Somewhere in this time period, the king probably said, you be governor. And this short stay has now become a 12-year stay. I don't know when it happened, but it happened. Now, the governors, following with me in verse four, um, the end of verse 14, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governors. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them their daily rations, 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of what? 
reverence for God, the fear of God. Remember here that fear again? He had said to the people, he had confronted them, that you're mistreating others, you're not fearing God. When you mistreat one another, you're not reverencing God, you're reverencing yourself. And now he's over here talking about how he's treating the people, and he's doing it out of fear and reverence for God. That God, you're so big in my life, I could never mistreat your family members in that way. Verse 16, I also preserved in the work on the wall, and we required no land. All my servants were gathered from there, uh, gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from nations who were around us. And now what was prepared at my expense for each day, hear this, I paid for the meals of pretty much our church. I paid for that meal every single day. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Your meals he took care of out of his own pocket. He could have required taxes and heavy burdens from you, but what he said is this, I want to give to you because I have a compassion, I have a a commitment to help you and help this body of believers. And so what does he do? At my expense each day, verse 18, one ox, six chosen sheep, birds, Every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. So how do we handle conflict? First, I think we need to have a compassion for for people that are hurting. Nehemiah showed that as a leader. He showed that he had a compassion for people that are hurting. Second, he showed that he had conviction for holiness. When he saw the injustice and the oppression, he went against it immediately and attacked it. Third, he confronted people to bring healing. And fourth, we find that he made a commitment to helping other people, even paying out of his own pocket, not taking that salary, not taking heavy burden, but to try to help the other people. I guess I could end the sermon there, but the reality is this. That's not where I need to end it. Because the reality is that I can give you all of these principles, and the reality is you're going to have problems in your marriages. The reality is you're going to have teenagers that are going to fight with their parents, and parents are going to fight with their teenagers. The reality is is that you're going to have disagreements with eldership or leadership at times. The reality is that the greatest joys and the greatest sorrows come from relationships. Uh, PT and I were talking this week, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, we do premarital counseling here. Why? Because we are so assured that you're going to have difficulties in your marriage. We want to give you the tools to deal with it ahead of time. Why do you need counselors? Why do you need disciples? Because, Because this side of heaven, we are sinners, and that sin is going to impact our relationships. That's why we need to hear the gospel. See, there was one person who lived this life perfectly righteous. He was the one that was compassionate for hurting people. He was the one who was truly committed to holiness. He was the one that was truly willing to be confrontational. You saw it throughout Scripture that Jesus would confront people. And there was one who was committed to your help, not your temporal help of financial gain, your eternal help to bring you to salvation in Christ. The answer is the gospel. The gospel changes lives. The gospel changes everything. 
See, because I can't, but he can. He has, he does, he will. I can only do this in him. What Nehemiah was able to see was this. He was a leader that was so word-centered and Christ-centered, God-centered. He didn't know the name of Christ, but he looked ahead to a redeemer. He was word-centered, God-centered, and that overflow of grace in his life that had been poured out to him, he pours it out to those that are around him. Because what does he think about grace? Think about grace. Grace is something that's unmerited. You can't earn it. There's something within all of us that really wants to believe that God loves me because of what I do. That I need to do these things in order for God to love me. I need to do these things in order for God to forgive me. I need to do these things in order for God to accept me. And so we do that. We become the the people of do. Grace is nice, but it's not enough. I need to add to it. But grace is not that. Grace is amazing favor. Grace says this, that you are a sinner and you can't do anything. Grace says, you deserve eternity away from God in hell, but I give you eternity in heaven if you trust in my son. Grace says that I could have left you. God says, I could have left you in the poison of your sin. I have chosen to let you free in life. Grace says that it is God's favor and mercy to you when you don't deserve it. Grace says that God is an angry God, but he is also a loving God. And then at the cross, he showed his holy anger. And at the cross, he showed his holy love to you. And he poured that out upon his son. And now he wants to pour that out to you and to me. That's what grace says. Grace is communicated to you. Lord willing, through the preaching of the word, that God communicates to you what he has done for you in the gospel. That's communicated through preaching, that's communicated through the teaching, that's communicated through the word. You know where else it's communicated, the gospel? Next week, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. The breaking of the bread and the cup show the body that was broken and the, and the wine, the blood that was spilled for you and for me if you trust in him. It's communicated when we will have baptisms here, when somebody goes into the water of baptism and then is risen out, goes into the water and dies, symbolizing Christ's death, and comes out of the water and symbolizes his rising to life. That gospel is there for you, and it's communicated in your life. Now let it communicate through your life. I love this song. I was thinking about this song this week. When I was thinking about Nehemiah, it's a hymn. It's an old hymn. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's called, How Firm a Foundation. Can I read the stanzas to you? The first stanza is this, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can be said than to you he hath said to you, who for refuge to Jesus has fled. The first stanza is basically saying this, in the word, God communicates his love for you. He communicates the gospel. You need to be students of the word. You need to know it and love it and saturate yourself with it so that you can hear that gospel message day after day. Stanza two. I love this. This comes from Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, one of my favorite verses. Fear not, I am with thee. 
Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God, and I will still give thee aid. I will strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. How many times did you hear fear in chapter 5? You should be fearing God and reverencing God and doing right. He's saying this, I want you to fear the right things. Fear me, God says, not in, in terror, but in awe and wonder at the amazing grace that he's done. Stanza 3. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross, that's your sins, your failures, your fears, your weaknesses, thy dross to consume and thy gold to define. Now God wants to create purity in your heart so that you are reflecting more and more of his son. Last stanza. Stanza 4. This is actually taken from Hebrews 3, 5, 13, 5. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, that means rest. I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, hell may be against us, will endeavor to shake, wants to rattle you. Uh-uh. God says, and he promises you in Christ, I will never, no never, no never forsake. I pray that for the conflicts that you have today, for the relational difficulties that you have today, first, I pray that you have compassion in your heart. That's, that's got to be God-built, and that's got to be grace-infused compassion for those that are hurting. Instead of talking, spend some time listening. I pray that you would have a conviction for holiness in your life, that you want purity in your marriage, purity in your life, in your thoughts, in your words, in your attitudes and actions, that you're reflecting Christ. I pray that you would have this ability to confront people in love, but confront for healing. That you would tell them the truth, but you would do it in a way that is loving and gracious, like you would have them do it for you. And then I pray that you would be committed to helping one another. We can build a beautiful building. They built a productive wall. But without the grace infusing them, there is no unity. There's no peace. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm looking at the title of this series, and it's called Rebuilding What is Broken. And Father, I know that um, it's talking about broken walls that need to be rebuilt. But the reality is, Lord, I know that there are people listening to me this morning that feel broken in their lives. They're broken because of um, guilt in their lives. Maybe they believe that there is a sin that is so great that you can't possibly forgive them. Maybe they live under a constant state of condemnation today. I know that there's some people today that uh, believe that they're actually pretty good. They believe that they're righteous and that they really don't need a Savior. Kind of like that rich young ruler who was in front of Christ. I've done it all. 
And Christ was able to expose the, the error of his ways and to show him that he was trusting in himself and not trusting in God alone. Father, there are many of us that have um, been saturated and stood under the uh, waterfall of your grace in Christ. I pray that we would pour that waterfall of grace out to one another. I pray that marriages, I pray that mar relationships, I pray that um, children and parents, I pray that friends and neighbors would be transformed by the gospel because the gospel can change everything. Father, remind us it's not just the gospel. The gospel's the good news, but the good news points us to Christ. So help us to see Christ today. Help us to savor him. Help us to glory in him. In Jesus' name, amen.